Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Mark Bowden. Mark is a keynote speaker and world-renowned expert in human behavior, body language, and communication. Mark has done presentation training and communication coaching for Fortune 500 CEOs and G8 leaders. And today on this podcast, he's going to be that coach for you. He is the creator of Truth Plane, a communication training company for anyone who has to communicate with impact to an audience. Mark is the author of several books, including the bestseller Winning Body Language, as well as Truth and Lies, which he co-authored with Tracy Thompson. Mark, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got interested in body language, in human behavior, and how you got into the work that you do? Yeah, sure. So as a kid, I was uh, kind of really obsessed by biology and visual art. And, uh, you know, I studied those both of those areas. I, I was obsessed with, uh, you know, how the body works, how uh, organisms work, and also obsessed with uh, images and the impact that those can have on people. And I guess over time, those two things came together and I studied actually performing arts and especially movement and theater and imagery. And again, the impact that images can make on people, how you can change people's feelings by the movement that they see. And from that, I got very specialized within theater and TV and film in helping people get the right effect from the images and the movement they were making, whether it was on a stage or in TV or on a film. And then politicians came to me and said, can you help us win trust with people? And then business came to me and said, do you think you could help us get our messages across more accurately and more easily? And it kind of boomed from there. And so now I find myself in this world of helping people with their communication but from this movement body language point of view. So rather than trying to affect the message or rewrite the message people have, I try and affect what goes around the message, the images, the movement, the environment that that message uh, occurs in, in order to trigger a response to that message and a feeling about that message. Does that make some sense? It does make some sense, but I think it would be hel helpful for the listeners if you could give a specific example of something that that you did where somebody came from you and you helped them solve this problem for them. Oh, yeah, sure. That'd be a great idea. So, uh, you know, I think as a generalization, um, when I'm helping, for example, people in business, uh, let's take the example of a, a CFO, a chief financial officer, who's going in to talk to the board and give the uh, the yearly results to their board. I've got a lot of clients in that area who say, I go in and I present, and uh, you know they 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 ask their other numbers or uh, they ask about details, which uh, you know, and they don't seem to trust. What I'm, what I'm telling them, and these are audited numbers, so I can't give them any more numbers. Uh, there's no other data for me to give them and to help them with understanding these these numbers. There's something up, there's something wrong. And so what I often do is help with, for example, just how they carry those numbers into the room. If they're in some kind of binder, 
that the the numbers are carried in elevated rather than held down by their sides that when they open up their binder of numbers that they're careful about opening them up rather than kind of haphazard about it that they open them up to the page with the numbers on without without looking at those numbers so they've already worked out um, where to put their hand in order to open up the numbers at the point where they want to start reading them. So it looks like they're really in control of that environment. Uh, another example would be I get their CEO, their, their, their chief officer, the person really, you know, who's, who's, who's in charge of the CFO. I get that person to, uh, give their seat to the CFO. So, so that they get status immediately as they come in. So what I'm trying to do is create a sense of trust and value around the numbers before the numbers are even talked about, even uh, said. Does that, does that help at all? Yeah. I mean, it does give some clarity, I, I think, or at least it does for me. There's a hyper sort of self-consciousness that I'm hearing how did your background, I'm going to delve into theater specifically since you referenced it, but there might be other things. Like what gave you this hypersensitivity? I think um, it could be that I'm dyslexic, so I'm not uh, great with words and numbers. I mean, I, I'm, I am pretty good with them. It's just they don't come out as other people would, would like them to and expect them to. I understand them. I understand them really quite well. It's just when I try and communicate them, They'll be in a different order, a different style, in different places than uh, others might might want for it to make sense for them. So I, I quickly realized that that I was not so good at. And visual imagery and putting that together, I could put that together in ways that people understood and it had a big effect on people. I guess because people aren't, aren't uh, quite as... Uh, closed down in the way that they want a visual image to come to them. When it's words, when it's numbers, we have a very specific syntax that we've learned and we like them in a certain order. If they're not in that order, we get a bit distressed. Whereas pictures, we can put them together in ways that people haven't quite seen before and it can have that, uh, that unconscious effect without disturbing them too much. So I guess what I did was to find that I could communicate better with images than I could with the usual kind of words and numbers that other people might have been been using. So maybe it's not a hypersensitivity, but but a skill, an ability uh, around that. But but look, certainly a learnt uh, ability. I had to learn to use those really, really well because the other methods just weren't uh, a, a big option for me. So were you aware not only of what you were doing, but you were aware of how you were being perceived? Is that where you began to develop this or did you notice it in other people and then begin to try to, to reorganize these things in the way that a theater teacher might rearrange people on a stage or the setting so that they can communicate their their feeling in a off a script or interpretation of script like where, where I'm, I'm trying to understand where this where this is coming from i find it fascinating yeah sure so um i think i was aware of a, a um of not being understood through words and numbers i didn't know why 
and nobody really knew why, but I was aware that uh, I was not perceived as being good at that. In fact, I was perceived as being careless and lazy and um, stupid at times. Uh, what I became very aware of is that I could structure images very, very well and get uh, good results from that, get praise for that. So at that, I was very, very skilled and artistic and brilliant. And so there were those words that would come to me when I ordered pictures and words of lazy and careless that would come to me when I ordered uh, numbers and words. So one set I got... Uh, uh, kind of punished for another set I got praised for so you can see how I'd, I'd veer my concentration across to the images and just get better at, at those you know why pursue something that I'm not getting great results at and then and yes for sure to your point I remember very definitely thinking very carefully about how images go together and how to make them clearer and how to be better at presenting them. So I, I definitely thought about that from a very, very early age and developed style and skill and ability and did a lot of that on, on purpose. So there was some very purposeful uh, developing of skill in one area than uh, another where where I did try and develop my skills in 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 words and, and numbers, but as much as I would develop the skill, it would never show itself. It was too hard for people to see past uh, the ordering of the numbers and the letters to see any skill there. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It made me think of two things. One of them is something I read about Tim Burton, and apparently, do you know do you know why Tim Burton started drawing monsters? No, I have no idea. This could be incorrect, but based on what I read, it was because he would watch old movies or hear stories, and he could identify more with the monsters than he could with some like good-looking, buff, archetypical sort of male hero, right? He identified more with the monsters, and so he began to humanize them. Because he re like he's not speaking on his behalf, but if I'm a monster, like I still have feelings. How do I feel? What do I want? And he began to humanize the monsters. And so, so much of his artwork and so many of his movies um, are based on sort of the humanization of these, these sort of cute little monsters. And that that was what I had read had driven it. And I thought that was really fascinating because he thought he was a little different. And I also read somewhere else that as an adult, he thought in discussions that he might be a little bit autistic and never had it diagnosed. And so maybe that was part of what made him feel a little bit different or feel a bit on, on the outside. But I, I found it fascinating because I think all of us are affected in different ways. We cultivate our personalities in different ways. I had a, a close friend I grew up with who was scared to fight. Like he didn't think he could defend himself. It's like the worst wrestler I have ever met in my entire life is to wrestle him. Like literally the worst. And uh, later on he became a sniper in the special forces. And like, and, and I know it was his attempt to sort of compensate for the fact that he felt weak when he was younger. And it's just fascinating how our nurturing affects us and, and causes us to move down different life paths or journeys or career paths or personal paths. That's the first thing. The second thing I thought about was the role validation plays in our lives, right? And whether it is uh, with our children, it's with our friends, it's with our partners, our girlfriends or boyfriends or wives or husbands 
how you validate them if they want your love, if they're seeking your love. And, and when we're in relationships, there's some of that. And if that's the case, like we begin to nurture our partners in ways that if we're not conscious, uh, ways that we didn't intend. But it's just fascinating. Those two things sort of came to my mind. But I think you have a beautiful story. And I just wanted to share those things. Do you have any other thoughts? Yeah, well, I think to your to your point there of being validated, you know, I would certainly say that we all want to be accepted in some way. And from from the moment we're born, I think, you know, we're going, where can I get accepted? How can I feel part of something and part of a group so I can feel safe? There's definitely an, an uh, evolutionary behavioral psychology there going on of how am I going to feel safe? How am I going to make sure I've got resource around me? If I'm not accepted, then my chances of, of being safe and having that resource around me are, are relatively low. So, you know, that that sense of being validated, I think, is about being uh, accepted. And so, uh, you know, as much as we can with the people we, we, we care about the most, I think we've got to spend a lot of time making sure <clears throat> that we're accepting them, not necessarily, you know, praising them for things that they haven't achieved at, um, but certainly accepting what they are doing. Um, because, that acceptance is 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 so important in terms of that sense of security and and uh, that survival mechanism. And if we're not feeling accepted, then it can be incredibly stressful uh, for us. So that would be my response to that. But they're they're great thoughts that you had there. As you were talking about that, I started thinking about this idea that when we feel we don't feel safe, we contract. We begin to compartmentalize. Um, we begin to suppress things because we're worried about the validation of the people around us or acceptance of the people around us. But yeah, when we don't feel safe, we contract. When we do feel safe, we expand. And I also started thinking about the evolution of the emotion of love, right? So why did love, the feeling of love, evolve into such an intense emotion? And the need to connect, why did that evolve into such an intense emotion? And I agree with you. I think on a biological perspective or a human evolutionary perspective, just survival. But the idea that like acceptance evolved into love or connected to love, I don't know if it directly evolved into love, but like I think of acceptance and I think of increased acceptance. And then like the epitome of that, when I think of that is just the loving feeling when I feel like I'm completely accepted. And there's a reason why that emotion sort of evolved in human beings as such an intense emotion. And there's some, I feel like there's some type of connection. The stuff you're talking about, I find is really fascinating. Well, I think to that, to that point, if, 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 uh, if you and other listeners are really interested in that area and interested in the, in the world of body language, there's a really important guy in the world of body language called Dr. Paul Ekman. And if you've watched the show, lie to me, uh, that show is partly based on some of the work of Ekman. Uh, and Ekman, Ekman was a, is a scientist um, who first looked into the idea of, of micro gestures, which are these, these unconscious, fleeting gestures that we make that uh, in our face that can betray to an extent what's going on inside us. But now the area that Ekman is interested in is this area of, of, of emotions, and there's a great book that he, he uh, wrote, which is really a transcript, uh, called Conversations with the Dalai Lama. 
So there's this very important scientist who managed to get himself, I think maybe even a whole week of conversation with the Dalai Lama, specifically about emotion, because that's what Ekman is exploring. He wants to know, uh, are emotions the same across the planet? We know that different things can trigger emotions for different people, but the emotion that's had, is that the same? And his interest is, is, is what is it? Like, why does it occur? Why would we have them? And him as an evolutionary uh, behavioral psychologist as well, he's going, well, well, they've got to exist because they have a purpose. They'd have been wiped out of the gene pool if they weren't important. So, so there's a, maybe a group of people who go, oh, you know, emotions are a bit superfluous and they're, they're, they're a bit soft and, you know, why would we have them? He's going, no, they're absolutely key to survival. And his exploration of that is to go and ask, you know, an important spiritualist, uh, the Dalai Lama, and go, well, what do you think? You know, he say, he's saying, I, I think these are really important from an evolutionary point of view. Tell me what you think, why you think they're important from a spiritual point of view. And let's see whether we have some alignment there. And let's see whether it, it affects the way I'm thinking about emotions. So, um, I, you know, to your point there, uh, if he's correct, you know, why do we have love? Well, without it, we wouldn't be able to survive. We wouldn't be able to work as groups together and to have the power that we can have as groups. And we would be the lesser for it. And, uh, you know, we would stand way less chance of survival on the planet without love. Love is an advantage, an evolutionist would say. So I kind of find, think that's interesting. And if you want to kind of delve more into that, uh, Ekman Conversations with the Dalai Lama. It's a great, great book. Yeah, I definitely will check it out. I'm familiar a little bit with his micro-expression work. I didn't know he was doing this. This is really interesting. I, I've been thinking a lot about what are the sort of biological and environmental factors that affect our emotions and how does emotions affect our choices? Um, I don't want to go off too off track. I want to get back to some of your work because your work is fascinating. You've done a lot with body language. I, I want to start with why is body language so much more important than verbal communication, assuming that's true? Yeah, yeah. So I know, so so often this importance of body language comes from the misinterpretation of some science done uh, by, by a, a scientist called Morabian, uh, which kind of said, um, well, which has been interpreted by some as, you know, more than 90% of communication is nonverbal. And the rest is verbal. Well, of course, that can't be true. Otherwise, you'd never be able to read a book. And you'd be able to, you know, put on uh, a film in a language that you don't understand. And you'd know everything that was going on. You know, you'd know everything in a film by turning the sound down. You'd know everything that's going on. Of course, that's not true. But uh, what is true, I think, and what uh, Moravian was looking at was, what is the information the brain is looking for in order to make a judgment about somebody's feeling and intention towards us. And what his science found was, is the majority of the data that our brain wants in order to make a clear judgment, a confident judgment about how somebody else feels and intends, especially towards us, the majority of the data is nonverbal, uh, i.e. it is the 
images that we see that person produce and the environment that they're in and the tonality of sound that they make, not the words that they say. And he also found out that if if the images and the sound, if the judgment we make about that conflicts with judgments that we're making about what they're saying, we side with the images and the sound. We side with the feeling that we had about it. You know, an example of that is if you look angry when you're talking to me, but you say something nice to me, I don't believe you. My judgment system goes, he's got to be lying to me. There's something up here. So our bias uh, around um, what we value more, we value more the images and the sounds that we hear over the words. And that's why I would say body language is so important. Because if we take that track, we can kind of say, hey, it doesn't really matter what you said unless you got the body language, the images right with it. If you've got an intention, a feeling, an idea you want to put across to me, you better pay some attention to how you get that across. Because if you get it wrong, you could negate what you said uh, by how you said it. Does that, does that make some sense? And is that clear? Uh, it is clear. I was trying to think of a good example to illustrate this, but I didn't come up with a good example, uh, a specific example, but I came up with a good general example. I was thinking that sometimes as a human being, we become emotionally blocked, right? We might have some internal dialogue that's happening in our head, reacting to the past, some type of trauma or our expectations for the future or whatever. We're not fully present. And in those situations um, where our mind's going, we, we might want to express what we're feeling and because we're in our head, we're not fully that that message is coming across with mixed signals, right? You're sitting you're sitting with somebody, and you're excited to be with them, but you're not facing them, and they assume that it's because you're not interested, or 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 something like that. And when I use the example of, of misspelling words, I was trying to think of some, a really specific good example. I was thinking of like the misuse of the word but, <laughs> but versus butt, or so I was trying to find something better. But um, like when you're if you misspell a word or misunderstand how to communicate a word in a language, then that communication be, can become confusing. And and I think the same thing can happen with body language to a certain extent. Does this make any sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, so let's take this idea of words that you, you're talking about. I would, I would see it in this way, in that um, if you hand me a, a document that you've produce maybe you've done a little bit of writing you've written an article or something like that and and you say mark can you give me some feedback on this and i write that feedback uh i could write it on your type document in blue pen or i could write it in red pen and so i write some stuff on 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 your document in red pen and you immediately see that document you haven't read, read, read any of my um, notes about it, but you see that document and it's got a lot of red pen on it. What's your instant assumption about how positive or negative I am towards your article if you see it in red pen? Well, I've been conditioned from school to understand that red pen means it needs to be corrected. So I'm being judged. Right. And I don't love being judged. Right, exactly. So you're relatively negatively biased towards my 
notes to you, and yet you haven't read the notes yet. Unless they're hearts that say I love you all over it. <laughs> right, okay, unless they're hearts. Yeah, okay, so that's an interesting <laughs> image, isn't it? You know, if I put a, if I put a bunch of hearts by it, um, you know, but, the, but the, the thing is, is I really enjoyed your writing and I wanted to be really helpful, but the only thing I had was a red pen at the time. And I was in a hurry and I really wanted to get the information back to you to really help you. But you've already judged that feedback. And now your mind and your body are reacting uh, to that. And and though, you know, it might say, hey, you know, uh, I, I really like the way you've worded this. Um, even that in red pen, you might go oh, he really likes the way I've worded this, but there's something else up. He's not telling me something. Or he just likes the way I've worded it. He doesn't get the meaning of it. It's easy to see how you could read between the lines with a negative bias because I've done it in, in red pen. And so I guess ultimately what we're saying here is the way the words come to you, the style in which they come, can help define the meaning uh, of them. Does that make some sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And it, it can expand anything from the type of paper or color of paper or quality paper or the type of font. As you describe this, I think of all the different ways that words can be. Is it on the back of a napkin? Is it in a well-bound book? I'm thinking about being in the library at Harvard and seeing the Gutenberg um, Bible. There's one of them there and there's another one in the Smithsonian I saw. Like the beautiful way that the images and words are displayed. So I can definitely visualize what you're saying and even think I'm, I'm thinking about it in different contexts. That idea of the Gutenberg Bible whereby you could, you know, the words are given extra value because of the, the, the work that's gone into putting those words down. We can see the care and the, and the, and the value and, and going back to your idea of the paper that you use, you know, think if you're handwriting a note to somebody. It's not just what you're saying in that note. It's the fact that you hand wrote it. It's the paper that you choose. It's the pen that you choose. It's the care that somebody could see in how, how it was, um, handwritten. There's, there's a whole bunch of meaning that happens for people that they infer then over to the message that you, that you wrote. And it's incredibly powerful. That's why I love this area of, of, of nonverbal, everything around, you know, nonverbal is essentially everything other than the words. Well, the reason I love it is there's so much power in it. There's so much force in it. There's so much that you can do. You know, if I walk down to my local stationers and I spend just a little bit extra on the quality of the paper, the power that it could have in the notes that I write to people. I think that's just an extraordinary thing. I'm thinking about how this can extend to anything from the way that you dress to the way that you keep your place to even ritual, right? The idea of thought that goes into a birthday or a birthday present or a wedding or a date. I'm just thinking about how how these things can be applied to so many different aspects of our life. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, you think about um you think about the, the, the date example, for example, and, um, you know, you may think the date is 
the cinema or the coffee or the, uh, you know, the restaurant or the walk that you're having or, you know, whatever it is, the sports game, whatever it is. But what about what's around it? What about the moments before it? What about the lead up to it? What about after it? That the, the frame that it's in could, could ultimately define, you know, how we view the experience positively or negatively by what happens around it. And I guess somebody like me would say the power is in what happened around it, not, not the thing itself. We often define the thing and judge the thing by what's around it. We need context. Uh, numbers are, are, are great like that. You know, if I just give you the number 10, for example, there's not a lot you can do with it. It's just an integer. But if I put it in context and I say, yeah, you know, he, there's 10 this year. Uh, last year we made five. You now know it's double. Well, that's, that's pretty good to double in a year. That's, that's pretty good. And then if I say, well, next year we're looking for a hundred. Now you go, wow, you know, that, that 10 is, is much better than last year, but it's nothing compared to what we've got to do to next year. So notice how when, when we put something, even numbers in context of others, they start to have a huge amount of meaning and we start to have a response to them. I mean, think as you're listening to those numbers, as I say to you, so we made 10 this year and last year we made five. You know, notice what happens to your face and the way you're sitting and the way you're judging that. And if I tell you, hey, we're going to we need to make 100 next year. Have you noticed more of a tension in your in your body? You're not feeling so relaxed. And I've done that just by telling you numbers in a sequence. But I'm being really clear about those numbers. And I know something of what the context might do to you. Yeah, I think about sometimes when we're out coaching how much this same type of context affects people's ability to interact, right? So like if a, if a guy is out and he's standing in the corner by himself or him and his buddy are standing in the corner by themselves and they're closed off to everybody else, even though they went out because they want to meet people, it's a lot harder to get going and talking to people from that perspective versus like you walk in with a group of friends, you're all, you're all having a good time. You're smiling, you're laughing, you're in the center of the room. Like uh, who you're with and where you're at in the context can make it a lot easier or more difficult in my observation uh, to connect with people. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And, and I also want to ask you, and for people who are listening to this, some people are looking to date, some people are looking to meet people, some people are trying to get an edge in their professional social life. What are some things that they could be doing in order to use the type of things that you're talking about to build better initial impressions? Yeah, great. So I love what you're talking about about there because that speaks to me uh, in a way that says people are going to judge us very much by the context that they see us in. They don't know, you know, I walk into a room, whatever kind of room it is, whether it's a room where I'm trying to you know, uh, attract somebody, whether it's a room where I'm trying to win some friends, whether it's a room that I'm trying to do some business, they're going to judge me by the context that they see me in because they don't know me, but they must judge me. So how does the brain do it? 
it looks at the context and it goes, what do I recognize here? What am I, what do I see here that I can make an instant judgment about and transfer that judgment to the person and feel confident that I have them, that I got them, that I can now behave around them. I've got a way of behaving. So maybe I'm walking into a room and I'm trying to, uh, you know, attract somebody what would cause people to make a judgment of going, okay, now I can behave in such a way that I move closer to them and I get to know them more because this person is of interest to me now. I can behave in such a way that I show interest in them. What would I have to do to come in with a context that would trigger them to go, yeah, I now know I can ignore them. I now know I can be indifferent to them what would i have to do in terms to create a context that would cause people to go yeah i need to be wary of that person that person is not uh is not going to be useful to me they're a risk rather than somebody of value to me now all of this can uh depend on the situation and the the group that you're moving in the culture that you're in uh but some things are pretty universal so an example would be the amount of space that you take up and, and, and you were saying yourself you know some some feelings some emotions cause you to close and some cause you to open and it's the same physically so you know do you come into the room and you seem like you take up space you're confident in the space that you you take up you're not contracted you're expanded a little bit more now you want to watch not expanding into other people's territories but you want to take up a good amount of of space so do you come into the room and do you hang around the periphery of the room or do you come into the room and you take up uh important space valuable space think about the space that you're in that you're going into and think where are the high value areas where are the areas where somebody of value would be? And can I go to that area? Can I go to that space rather than hang out in the space close to that? So that when people see me, they can judge me in the context of the space that I'm in and how much space I take up around that. So they can see I'm confident. I know I should be in that space. Now, I, I, I know there's a certain aspect where people go, look, you know, you should just do what you want, how you feel, and people will get to know you and they'll, and they'll get to know you. Well, they need a trigger. They need something that will cause them to go, I want to investigate this more. And unfortunately, it's an external thing. They're looking for something <clears throat> external. Their brain is looking for something, <clears throat> excuse me, they can see or hear in order to start that behavior of getting to know you better. So you do have to, to an extent, you know, put on an initial set of behaviors on purpose in order to win yourself the best opportunity. I hope that makes, makes some sense. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. 
This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. It makes a lot of sense. A few different things come to my mind. One is that this correlation between space and power, I know it's something that I've talked about, it extends into all kinds of different places, right? Like if you think about uh, the person who has the, the biggest companies, right? They tend to have the bigger buildings and the most desired spaces. You think about whoever's the head of that company usually has like a larger office on the top floor because they get two views. They have they command more space and more desired space. The same thing is true about where people live, right? People who don't have, or, or we'll go back to the work example, people who have no power at work don't even have a space or they have a really small space. They're working in cubicles. And and uh, the same thing's true about uh, where people live. Uh, I was thinking about the favelas in, in Brazil, the shanty towns, like everyone's living in close proximity, the ghettos, projects, right? People are living close in these sort of really close spaces versus the people who live in our societies who our cultures who have the most power live in the most desired areas where I grew up that was on the hill or near the water in New York City. It's still near the water or park and in the more desired neighborhoods and the more desired buildings. And and this can break down all the way down into the way that people take up space in a conversation. So I think that this is uh, whether it's on stage, I, I'll never forget um being at a, an event and there's a speaker and he was roaming the stage and everybody else was just sitting in their seats. And there was just one woman who got up and she was just wandering around. And I thought it was so weird that she was just getting up and wandering around. And she did it for like a couple hours. She just wandered and would walk the aisles. And like, she wasn't part of the crew, but she just wandered around. And I, I remember thinking, like initially I judged her. I was like, that's so strange. I, in some ways I admire her because there's that flexibility which sort of leads to the second thing i thought about is people say they want to do you should just do what you want to do but i would argue that most people really aren't doing that um this woman sort of was but most people if they were really sort of emotionally free then they end up expanding as well and whether it's their behavior or the body language or, or they move to the space that they really want to move in instinctively because they're not responding to the fear of rejection, the dialogue going on in their head. So I actually don't think these things are as far apart as one might initially think. I think when somebody is feeling sort of clear and open and they're attracted to the things that they perceive as being valuable, or they're just like there's less conflict. And I think this manifests in the things that you're talking about that people pick up. They're not worried about laughing too loud because they're just being themselves. They're not worried about going into uh, throwing their feet up on the table because they don't really 
care what anybody else thinks. I mean, it's disrespectful to do it. Somebody, did you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, but that's exactly it. I mean, I, I think that's where people get it a little bit wrong is going, well, you know, uh, you should just be your yourself. Well, yourself is isolated. Yourself is is not necessarily social. Uh, so, you know, if I'm just being myself, yeah, I walk into your office and I put my feet up on the table. That's antisocial. So, but but it, I felt like doing it. Okay, well, but but that's rude. Well, I should just be able to be myself. Well, yeah, you can do what you like, but you might find other people don't like it, and you might find that there's some uh, you get some resistance around that because you're seen as antisocial. We we have to get the right balance between us and others because we're social mammals. And without society around us, without support, we die or we're sociopathic, neither of which is, is a good place to be. So, so all our behaviors, yes, there's a certain element of ourself that we have to satisfy. So we're self-satisfied, but also there's a good proportion of understanding how others need us to be in order for them to be able to support us. And, and vice versa. I mean, it's no good somebody being totally authentic and me going, yeah, but I, but I distrust you and I don't like you, so I'm not going to support you if they need my support and they want my liking. It's no good them, you know, being themselves in isolation because I won't like it and I won't support it and they may end up uh, the, the less for it. And, and some people would say, Hey, you know, that's okay because, because they should just be themselves and, and their tribe will kind of, you know, revolve, they'll find friends and they'll find you, you, you obviously weren't the right person for them. There is that viewpoint. And there's also, no, they're just being antisocial and they have to learn some, uh, some better social skills, uh, in order. I mean, a great example of this, I always say is, is lying. Lying is one of our most important social skills, as is telling the truth. And the key is, is knowing when to do it, is knowing when to lie and when, when to tell the truth in order that you have a support system around you. And so to that extent, yes, you can lie with your body. Your body language is a good liar. It's a great liar. Yeah, it's a great teller of the truth as well. And so we've got to use that nonverbal skill as well in order to lie and in order to tell the truth so that we are supported. And so that we can support others as well. I mean, if you couldn't lie, how would you support some of the most important people around you who are doing things that, you know, part of you says that's not really the best thing to do and it's not a great thing to do. But in order to influence and persuade you to the right thing to do, I need to s support this right now rather than, you know, uh, put up a huge barrier uh, against it. So, uh, you know, there's that point. Also, I want to kind of flick back to your idea of, of, of the biggest things and power. Uh, somebody once said to me, which I thought was very insightful, is in history, if you want to know who had the most power at the time, just see who was building the tallest buildings. The power, the most powerful thing, always builds the most tallest, tallest buildings. And so uh, I'm in Toronto. At the moment, and if you look around Toronto, you'll see that the uh, the churches are overpowered by the size of the bank buildings, but they're now getting overpowered 
by the size of the condo buildings. So you kind of get this idea of the consumer is now becoming more powerful than the money itself. Uh, you know, if, if we take this theory of the power is able to build the tallest buildings in history. It's fascinating. I transferred to a college in New York. It's called Columbia. It's on the Upper West Side. And there's a big cathedral there. Apparently, it's the biggest in North America. And I've seen pictures from, I don't know, a while ago when they first built that thing. And it was on a hill and it was massive. And you could see it from everywhere. And now it just blends in with the buildings. I mean, you see it when you're on the street or across the street. But if you're a street away, you can't see it because all the other buildings block it out. And so connecting it back to your idea about how sort of space is used in a society um, and what that means for what the society values is quite fascinating. Um, I had a buddy of mine who used to say that a friend of his used to tell him that you could figure out somebody's values by their checkbook and their schedule. And there's a, ma there's a connection to space and the use of space or time in, in this case or money. And that I think parallels what you're saying. So I find it really fascinating. I also find what you're saying about validation really interesting because I, I agree. I think for years I've, I've heard people say over and over and over, you should be self-validating. And I think a lot of people misunderstand this concept. I don't know if we're going to be able to fully explore it here, but if people didn't need the validation or desire the validation of the people around them, nobody would ever connect, right? You You have to care what your girlfriend or boyfriend or partner or children or family or friends or coworkers care about to some extent. And sometimes that, that can feel stifling. Well, I mean, a great, a great example, sorry to cut in, but a great example, just to really validate what you're saying there. Uh, a great example of that would be me to ask you, you know, do you know what a, uh, a psychopath thinks of your view? Absolutely nothing. They don't care about your view. They don't have no care at all about your view. And so the moment you start as a human being going, you know, I just shouldn't care about what other people think. You are on the road to being a psychopath. You are on the road to being sociopathic. Of course we care about other people's views. Yeah, of course we care. Now, it's about <clears throat> whose views are more important than others. But we have to care about some some people's views. Maybe we shouldn't care about everybody's. Or maybe there's some views that we care about that, that really, if we looked at it more carefully, we'd go, it doesn't really, their view doesn't really matter. But at some point, we've got to go, their view doesn't matter. But that, that person's view, that person's view really does matter. But if you make nobody's view matter, you are antisocial. And that's going to be a real problem. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough balancing act, right? Um, on the one extreme, you have that type of behavior or mindset, the antisocial behavior that manifests as a consequence of that. And the other side of this sort of extreme spectrum, you have people who are so concerned about what everybody thinks that they feel stifled or they're suppressing themselves. And so, so much of the challenge is figuring out how to sort of navigate <laughs> The, the middle ground, which is leads me to my next question. If if somebody is listening to this and they want to become more aware of their body language, where do they start? What do they do to start making those improvements? 
Yeah. So, so, you know, a simple thing you can, you can start doing for yourself is simply becoming a little more self aware. And, and that's not necessarily self conscious, although I would use self conscious because both are the same. You're being conscious of yourself. You're, you're looking at what you do, uh, and, and going, is it getting me the results that I want? Think about an interaction that you have and think, how's this going? Is this going well for me? Or could it be going better for me? And then think to yourself, what am I doing right now? What am I doing? And is something that I'm doing helping me get to where I want? Or is it hindering? And then as you're in that situation, go, hang on, what else could I do? If, if you think it's not going as well as you would like, think, what else could I do? And have a best guess. Just do a good guess. Go, well, if I, if I moved closer to that person, I think that would help. Great. Good guess. Do it. Test it. Be a scientist. Test it. Because if it starts going wrong, reel it back. Yeah. And if it's going well, if things are going well, think, okay, what am I doing that's making this go well? And could I increase that? Or can I make sure that I'm just doing that right now and I don't muddy? what I'm doing on a behavioral level. So I'm actually advocating being a little more conscious, self-conscious of yourself. Now, that might be different from self-judgmental, whereby anything that's happening, you're kind of negatively judgmental. You're like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. Oh, that's going wrong. Oh, I'm doing the wrong thing. You want to have a very open mind to it. You want to be going, how's this interaction going? And what am I doing? And is there something that I'm doing that could help this, you know, or is there something that I'm doing that's hindering this? And what else could I do? So you're just viewing almost a little bit dispassionately what's happening there, but you're not dispassionate about your goal. You know, you've got to fix your goal and go, here's what I want out of this interaction. What could I do on purpose to make it work better? And is there anything that I'm doing that you know, I should, I should move to another action to make it go better. So a little more self-awareness, a little, little more self-consciousness, if you want to call it that as well. And I, and I have to say this, uh, most people on the planet are not very self-aware of what they're doing when it's happening. So the moment you do even a few moments of that in interaction, the moment you start thinking a little bit about what, what do I want here and what am I doing to get it? You, you're, thinking at a level that most other people on the planet won't be won't be thinking you're doing something extraordinary uh not that the brain isn't capable of it we have a brilliant uh, ability to be uh self-aware and to change our behaviors on purpose due to that awareness it's just we don't use it that often so use that a little more often is my best advice i think right now so let's say somebody is trying to connect with somebody they're in a conversation and they want to build trust they want to build rapport maybe you can define what that means for people what types of things should they be doing yeah sure so uh so rapport is this uh idea let's just say it's the is the idea that we have of being together when i feel like i'm in rapport with you then it feels to me like we're together and then there could actually be that we are in rapport, which is we are together. And rapport is gained 
Um, well, there's many different ways that you can you can gain it, but but let's just go for a, a simple and, and well known one because it's really quite effective, which is the idea of mirroring us both doing the same thing, kind of being together in the same place and knowing that because we're doing very much the same things in the same place. So copying uh, each other. Now, interesting enough, we do this on we do this um, unconsciously anyway. Um, so, so I'm not necessarily a great advocate of saying, Hey, copy people, because that can often look a little bit weird and feel a little bit weird, but let me put it this way. Can you be more open to joining in with other people? Just be a little bit more open to joining in with people. So, Hey, maybe I approach, uh, a group, uh, whether it's, male female or a mix or you know whatever group that is whether it whether it's friends or business or dating whatever it is i approach a group and what i want to say to myself is can i make a point of trying to join in with what's happening here not can i make sure that i'm mirroring everybody there and i'm copying somebody's gestures and no can i just be really open to joining in just have that mindset. Just make that a goal for yourself and see what happens. See what happens if you just make a point of going, I'm going to try and join in as much as possible. Does that does that make some sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I thought of a couple of things while you were talking. One of them was this can happen on lots of different levels, right? Mirroring it. It can happen through body language. It can happen through voice. I had a buddy of mine in high school. We spent so much time together. We started using sort of the same words and yeah, the same yeah. tone and pitch. I would pick up his phone. His mom couldn't tell the difference between me and him. <laughs> this is mother, right? Um, this can yeah. happen in the way that we dress. I remember when I first started Craft Christmas, we had some interns and I had a guy who was helping me coach and he was wearing these shirts. And then one day I need a shirt. And so I bought one. And then the next time we show up, uh, we noticed that both the interns are wearing the same type of shirt that we were. And I found it fascinating. Like it sort of, they suddenly saw that the people in the group who had sort of status and power were doing something. And they began to mirror us, and my buddy uh, sort of made the comment. He's like, oh, "I guess we have company uniforms now." <laughs> it was sort of, it was so, sort of funny. But um, I and then late, not that long after that, I read an article and it was about a celebrity. And it's like, how do you know uh, she's over her ex? And the article is like some like supermarket tabloid or something, and it said because she's dressing like her new boyfriend. And it showed a picture of them and they were both wearing jeans and, and denim jeans and like a denim shirt and both wearing hats that were sort of similar. And I, I just find it really fascinating. This happens in our conversations. The, the dress example you'll see on Halloween with couples, right? Somebody will be a plug yeah. and someone will be an outlet. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I thought about like how this idea of mirroring expands into different places. I also thought of a personal experience where, I mean, I teach this stuff, but sometimes I still find myself fucking things up. And like, as a personal example, I remember being on a date with a girl and I was sort of going through some emotional things at the time from a bunch of things that happened in my life that were pretty intense. People who were important to me died, just a lot of different things. And I remember her saying uh, later on, she's like, on that date, you weren't even facing me. And I just remember going, fuck. Like, and, and what was happening was I was re reacting to some of the emotional things that were happening inside of me. I wasn't fully present. And if I would have just used the exercise of mirroring her body language, 
um, at the beginning, sort of forced myself to do that, even though I wasn't in the right headspace, that probably would have been enough of a catalyst to get me present to the point where I my body could have taken over and done that automatically. Instead, I kind of emotionally and physically blocked her, and, and she was definitely a person worth getting to know. So going back to your original idea that um, you should just do whatever you want, sometimes we need tools that get us going. And even if you're somebody who's pretty good at this stuff, and I think that I am, I've been teaching people how to date for a decade <laughs> and I still managed to completely fuck this one up because, um, well, because, because rapport is strong. And, and in that example of that date that you're talking about, your rapport with the, uh, emotions that you were feeling around, around, you know, some of the issues at the time, you, that rapport was unconsciously stronger than, uh, any natural rapport that was going to happen with the date. So, so you needed the tool then of going, of going, look, I'm going to go in and I'm going to join in with what's happening with, with this person. I'm going to join in with that because otherwise, you, you know, unconsciously you will be drawn into rapport with the, the story that's going on around, around the other issues and re just rapport with yourself just being with your in your own head having a conversation with yourself and your own feelings and and the play that's happening there rather than the 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 interplay of behavior that could happen with the with the date so it's it's strong and so sometimes you need these absolutely these purposeful tools that you're teaching uh, in order to stand uh you know a good chance in some really important situations well, what's the alternative, right? You just sit at home and grieve for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> like if you true. get if you get stuck in a ditch, at some point, you're either gonna find a way to get out of it, create some type, you put steps into the ditch that allow you to climb out. Somebody throws you, you're gonna you're gonna come up with a strategy, or someone's gonna help you develop a strategy, or whatever. You're you're gonna ha find a way. You're gonna find some type of mechanism to get out of that ditch. Otherwise, you're just gonna die. Well, exactly. And that's why, that's why the, the tools that you can teach are so important because, and, and I know, you know, some people often have a, an issue with these tools. They've got an issue with, you know, the tool of purposefully mirroring, for example. Um, but I don't think they'd have an issue with the tool of a ladder of getting you out of a ditch. It, and, and so I, you know, it confuses me a little bit of, of, well, you've got no problem with building a ladder in order to get out of a ditch. Why have a problem with the ladder? of mirroring in order to get out of that ditch of 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 not of it being harder to uh create a relationship being harder for all kinds of reasons to join in with people around you you know anybody who who has an issue a, a problem you know a, a barrier with with joining in the tool of purposeful mirroring is a great tool it's a brilliant tool because it's so simple and it's so executable and it can, can nudge and trigger your, uh, your, your unconscious to actually joining in, truly joining in. But it needs, uh, you know, a fuse. It needs a, a light. It needs something to spark that, uh, that chain of events.
to to happen so you know people who say some of these tools are you know disingenuous or well they can be if they're used in a disingenuous way but if they're used in a genuine way of saying i want to trigger myself into having a better time with people uh, trigger myself into being more social you know uh, then these are great tools yeah i mean you can use your a knife to cut up food or you can use it to kill people right for like, sure so if i give you if i give yeah. you a hammer you can hammer in a nail to hang up my coat or you can hit me over the head with it but, but a hammer is a great tool it's about intent right and so um I, I absolutely agree with that you talk about or you've written about how becoming influential like there's a correlation between that and appealing to sort of these deeper psychological needs can you expand about expand on what are some of these deeper psychological needs and how we can use this knowledge to better connect with people and be more influential and yeah so so actually let me go go back on something i've already said rather than say anything new because i think often it's important to to reiterate ideas and, and, and concentrate on one idea before you move on to another. Uh, what is one of our deep psychological needs? To be accepted. To be accepted. And so if you want to influence and persuade somebody, one of the most profound ways you can do that is let them know that they are accepted. Let them know that they are accepted. Um, there's a whole bunch of others that I could talk about. I want to concentrate on on that one. So what would I have to do physically to let you know that you're accepted? Well, you, I'd have to be open to you. You'd have to see that you have access to me. Uh, when you're talking and giving your ideas, you'd have to see that I watch you and I see you. So I'd have to give eye contact. Uh, maybe to your eyes, but certainly to you. If you're not looking at me, I need to be looking at, at you. If you're looking away, I maybe don't mirror that. I maybe make sure that I'm watching you all the time so you can see that you and your ideas and what you're saying is of value to me. And I see it in an open way as I'm hearing from you. And I maybe nod my head to show you not necessarily agreement, but acceptance, understand acceptance is different from agreement. I can accept what you say and I can still disagree. So I can have an, an, an argument with you and you still feel really accepted when I have that argument with you because I'm accepting you and I'm accepting what you think and feel, but I have a different point of view, which you could accept as well. So, so I think the most important psychological need is that of acceptance. And if you want to influence and persuade people and build great relationships with people, especially quickly, think what you can do with your body and your words and your intonation and the environments that you go to with people that would help them understand that you are accepting them. The more you do of that, the the bigger and the bolder and the stronger relationships you may find that you're having with people. Hope that's useful. I think it's incredibly useful. I, I've been thinking a little about this subject, sort of this idea that every human being wants to be seen in certain ways. And it's very seldom that somebody sees us the way that we want to be seen. And when they do, in my experience, I felt incredibly accepted. And I feel 
like when I've been able to do that with other people, the feedback that they've given me is the same. That's sort of something that I, I wanted to share because I was trying to think about what are some of the ways that I might be able to define acceptance. Yeah, I think that's really important because because there's there's a uh, a good amount of psychological and social theory out there that says, well, how do how do we know who we are? Well, we know that by the reflections of ourselves that other people uh, display back to us. The, the rest of the people around us, the environment around us, is essentially our our mirror. And, and we walk around going, well, who am I? And then we look out and we go, well, how are people responding to me? Well, how they're responding to me, that must be a result of who I am. And so we define ourselves by uh, those reflections. That's one theory. There are some other theories as, as well, and some of them would contradict that. But that's, that's uh, one theory. And we might say those that are especially good at communicating might have a really strong idea of who they are or who they want to be. And they might push out um, communication in order to trigger the reflections that they want to see in order to be able to trigger back that affirmation of, yes, that's who you are. So that can be a very strong uh, loop. Now for others, they might not quite know who they are at that point. They might not be picking up very strong reflections from people to have even formed a strong idea. And so they don't really know what information to send out to see if they get that back and to reinforce their idea of their personality. That can be really quite distressing. So I guess, you know, what's, what's our intervention into that? Well, one of the interventions might be if you're a little bit unsteady about, you know, who you are, have a best guess. Have a just just have a good guess at it. Just have a guess at an aspect of it and start pushing out a little more communication around that and see what reflects back to you. Just play around with it. Experiment with it. Just get um, curious about it and make best guesses and experiment with best guesses you know our, our personality is an ongoing it's an ongoing thing for the for the whole of our life anybody who you think is out there going yeah, yeah they've got their personality down they know who they are that they've they've got it sorted out i guarantee they haven't because it's a continuum that changes and evolves and tweaks throughout your your life and if you're looking out there going i need to be that person who seems to have got it down that's just that's that's not accurate it's a fluid thing and, and it's a subtle thing. Make your best guesses, communicate out, see what you get back, make some changes or don't make some changes. But, you know, don't think it has to be set and solid and, and strong at any point in your life. Just make a few decisions and try them out. I think this is great advice. I'm wondering if you can get a little bit more specific. Does this mean a changing the way that someone tries to verbally communicate their non-verbals? Does it mean posting about something you wouldn't normally post on a social media platform? Does that mean wearing a, a hat if you don't wear hats and you want to try that? Like, what does this mean in a, for a practical application? Someone's listening to this. They want to try what you're saying, but they don't know what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all of those things. I think you've got to make a, a little bit of a choice around and have a good guess at around what kind of person you, you are or you might be. And then, then the 
the key thing is to go, how would I let people know that? How would I be clear about that? What could I do that would have some clarity and, and would be, people would see it. Uh, I could reproduce it. I could do it again and again and again because they might not see it first time. You know, repetition is something important in communication. So how would it be totally visible or hearable? You know, I'd have to use my out loud voice. I can't just go around thinking it. I've got to do it. I've got to embody it or I've got to say it. And I need to be able to do it and say it uh, a lot in order to, to stand a chance of getting some feedback around that so you're right it could be something that you that you uh you know tweet out or put on facebook but you it's got to be something that you could do again and again and again so it so it might be um something thematic around what you send out or it could be a hat that you wear but you don't just wear it one night you wear it all nights and people go people will start to comment and you'll go are they are they commenting back to me what I wanted to hear? You know, are they going, why are you wearing that ridiculous hat? Which is maybe not what you wanted to hear. Or maybe it is because you want to go, hey, I think, you know, elements of me are a little bit ridiculous. So I'm going to wear a ridiculous hat. And people will go, hey, that's kind of ridiculous. And you'll go, thanks. <laughs> so, so, you know, you've got to make a choice and find a way to clearly communicate that out. I hope that that kind of, makes sense yeah it definitely makes sense to me i know we're starting to get constrained on time i have a couple quick questions one you've mentioned mirroring multiple times what are some other tools because you mentioned there are a bunch of other tools maybe you could, you could just name a few of them and and briefly describe them sure so so um in terms of rapport proximity uh the, the closer you are to people the more rapport you may well get within some tolerances if you get too close at the wrong times you'll be invading their territory and that won't be uh you know positive rapport there could be some negative rapport that happens uh there but um space is one of them and and how close you are to somebody time as as well time is a huge part of nonverbal. so if we if we're mirroring yeah it's not very useful if i'm mirroring at a different time to you because you wouldn't know it. It's no good us uh, doing the same thing, but out of sync with each other. We need to be in in sync with each other. And if I am mirroring out of sync, I need to report to you, communicate to you that I'm mirroring. So Facebook is a great way of doing that. Of of, of I don't know if you like something, and you report that, uh, I can report back at the same time. Hey, I you know. I enjoy doing that as well, but also I can post pictures of myself outside of that time frame doing the same thing. Yeah. But again, it's got to be visible. You're not a mind reader. I have to communicate to you that I'm doing those things. So in order to gain rapport, there is, there is mirroring. There's uh, being in the same place and in closer proximity and there's being in the same time frames and if you're not in the same time frames again you need to use some of the other communication methods to give the illusion that you're in the same time frame facebook is a great way of giving the illusion of being in the same time frame because you can take pictures of an event and post it now and it tricks the mind into thinking this event is happening now 
when it's when it's not. I know the conscious mind know it's not, knows it's not happening now, but the unconscious mind doesn't know, doesn't understand the time frame. So a couple of other ways there of of being conscious of some of the important uh, elements there, factors within rapport, space and time. If somebody's listening to this, not only are they going to pick up some strategies, hopefully that they might be able to use to have more successful relationships and connections and influence, but they also might become hypersensitive or, or aware that people might be using those on them. So how does somebody get better at reading people and how can they tell whether or not the person they're interacting with is being truthful or deceptive? Yeah, so so unfortunately, your, your chances of being able to uh, read deception consciously are, are pretty low. Um, and, and so I would say... Uh, now, if you do want to go down down that route, it's because it's, it's a long conversation around that to get it right. Uh, there's a new book that I've written uh, with co-author Tracy Thompson, Truth and Lies, uh, What People Are Really Thinking. Read that book and, and you'll get, uh, I think, the, the, the best technique and strategy for getting closer to the truth and lies that people may well uh, have around you. But my best advice right now uh, is if you start consciously trying to work out is somebody lying to me or not, you might as well probably flip a coin yeah, and, and test it that way. Okay. Uh, what I would suggest is if you're in places whereby you have enough power, you're not in a place where you're physically in trouble. Uh, just be a bit more optimistic about people. Default a little bit more to the positive rather than negative. Assume a little more positive intent around people. Now, if you are in a place whereby uh, you don't have a lot of power, uh, you're, you're physically, mentally um, in a place where you could be get into trouble, uh, and assume negative intent because the ramifications of giving people the benefit of doubt in those kind of situations could end up to be uh, pretty troubling for you. But outside of that, just assume a little bit more positive intent and don't walk around the planet going, I got to check out when people are lying to me. People lie to you and tell you the truth all the time. It happens, it happens multiple times in a day that people tell you a lie and some people tell you the truth. And you don't know when one is happening and when the other is happening. But if you were to live a little bit, bit more of your life, defaulting a little bit more to, you know, what if this is the truth? What if I'm being talked to honestly here? What would I want to do about that? Um, you may find that some things open up for you a little bit more. But if you really want to get into the detail of, of how you do uh, deception, detection, and a whole bunch of other body language reading elements, truth and lies, what people are really thinking, go and grab that. Awesome. Last question. Somebody's listening to this. You have this wealth of knowledge. Hopefully they've picked up a wealth of knowledge. Any of the last suggestions for people who want to be more successful, making friends, dating, building relationships? Yeah, sure. Uh, take a few more risks. I know it's, I know it's something that a lot of people probably say, but it's, it's good advice is take a few more risks. I know, you know, things might have happened to you that make some some simple risks for other people feel uh, immense for you, but find where you can take more risks and put yourself out there a little bit bit more. Uh, you know, there's a lot of 
of, of gamble in, in life. Um, and the only way, uh, to win is, is to, is to play a few games and knowing that you, you know, the role of the dice, you might well lose on this one, but there's plenty more roles. So get out there, take a few more risks where you think you, you can and push yourself out there a little bit more. Mark, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Mark, you want to learn about his books, you want to learn about the things that he's done, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about him more easily. Thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.